We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 143 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 18th of April, 2018, and we've got a special podcast for you this time because for the first time in a long time, the three of us are together in the studio looking at each other. It's been a long time, hasn't it? Mm. Welcome, Scott, to the studio. We've got a few more cables and cords. <laughs> G'day, Trevor. Yeah, I'm just currently drinking a Carlsberg as we speak. Oh, very good. And the 12th man has not been called up by the Australian Cricket Board just yet, so... I'm still safe. Greetings, gentlemen. Right, yeah. Um... Very good. So, dear listener, we've got a lot on the agenda because we've had a week off and there's plenty been going on around the world. So we didn't actually have it on the list, but I've just decided to throw it in as the first thing is, you know, when the great Western powers of the world decide to bomb a country, we really should stop and pause and say, is this a good idea or not? And, of course, we've had this incident of alleged chemical attacks by the Syrian government on the rebel forces and the response where the US, the UK and France have given fair warning to the Syrians and said, hey, those buildings over there, we're going to bomb those because we reckon they're sort of where you got your chemicals. So if you guys could quickly get rid of them over the next few days before we land a bomb and hopefully nobody gets hurt and, um, and then they bombed a few sites. And 12th man... Have you got a firm opinion on this one? I think it's kind of ridiculous tokenism. Um, as you said, uh, you know, how many people have died in that civil war? Uh, almost half a million, mm-hmm. at least 400,000 by whatever means. And uh, what was it? I mean, not to say that chemical weapons use is okay in any way, shape or form, but if they really objected to what Assad has been doing, which is wholesale slaughter of the Syrian people, um, why don't they just uh, send the missiles to his home? To his home. I mean, to him. Mm -hmm. Kill him. Yes. If they really want to be the, uh, you know, the the arbiters of morality in that area of the world. So, well, do you think they should have launched an attack or not? Yes, but not at those particular buildings. Like at his palace or something like that. <laughs> something like that. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Velvet glove. I'm not entirely sure of how I feel about it. I, I understand why the West reacted the way they did. They did give them fair warning and all that sort of stuff, so they've probably cleared out all the chemicals anyway mm. before they were bombed. So that was fairly pointless. I think that... Uh, it would have been more effective had they have given them no warning at all and just struck the targets mm. and blew them up. Mm. But and they might have killed a Russian or two. They could well have killed a Russian or two, but the Russians... Or a North Korean. Them, well, the because Russians, of... Russians have put themselves in the firing line. They have, they have involved themselves in the Syrian civil war and a Russian or two could have got killed in a raid, yeah, for sure. I saw reports that North Koreans were assisting them with their uh, chemical manufacturing. I wouldn't know. Couldn't tell you. 
it wouldn't surprise me, but uh, I couldn't tell you. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I take the view that Paul just expressed, you know, there's been 500,000 have been killed in that civil war so far, and they are talking about 1,700 or 1,800 victims of chemical attacks. So that is a very small number of the total deaths, mm. for sure. And I do think that had the West have been really concerned about the Syrian people, they probably would have started bombing a long time before this, mm. and they would have chosen the targets. They would have chosen the Syrian government as its primary target, and you know, and also ISIS as well. You know, you, you can't. You know, they had to take out ISIS too. But uh, I'm not. I'm not entirely supportive of the strikes. I do understand why they thought it was necessary, though. But uh, I'm not entirely sure it was right. Well, I've got much firmer opinions than the two of you. Yeah. <laughs> squibbed out. And before I launch into it, I'm just going to open the door and tell the other people in this house to be a bit quieter because I can hear everything. Hang on. <laughs> He's definitely got to build that soundproofed studio. <laughs> <laughs> we heard that. Right, I'm back to you, listener. After leaving the studio and entering the kitchen, and tell everybody to shut up. <laughs> That's next on the agenda. Will be uh, soundproofing. I think. I think so. Yeah. So, um, no. Look, my approach to all these sorts of things is you've got to be consistent. Often, in these sort of ethical debates, you can argue about what's right or wrong, but when somebody has a position, then you say, well. What's the rule that applies to that position? And that must mean that in these other cases you would do the same thing or you wouldn't do the same thing. So if people are just consistent, that's all you can ask for. And, you know, we've got 80 people killed by chemical weapons by a government. Does that mean every time a government kills 80 of its own people, it's up to other governments to launch an attack? On some empty buildings. If if that was justification for launching an attack on another country, we'd, the skies would be filled with missiles every day. I mean, there's there's nothing special about a chemical attack, in my view, because for the people who are killed, well, you know, what, 80 people are killed by mustard gas, there's 80 people who are gunned down by a machine gun, and in the one hand we're going to say oh, that's terrible, that first one, and we're going to do something, but on the second, we don't? Or, alternatively, 80 people are starved to death by their government who doesn't allow them access to food and water and, um, you know, is basically quelling a rebellion through starvation. We say, oh, that's okay, we're not going to fire any missiles. So if you're going to say that you can retaliate for that, then you're going to opening a can of worms to retaliating for almost anything. And secondly, what the hell have we got a United Nations for if not to authorise this sort of thing? So we've... The three UN, the UN would have... The, 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 any move by the Yanks and the French and the British in the UN would have been blocked by the Russians, though. They yeah. would have... True. They so would it wouldn't have, have happened. Their, their, um, it wouldn't have happened. Power. So yeah. in that case, agree that, you know, it wouldn't have happened because the UN wouldn't have allowed it and you'd have to sit on your hands, or um, acknowledge that the UN's a failed system and bail out of it and say you're not holding to it anymore. But you can't do both. You can't be a member of the UN and then ignore it. 
Fourth Man. Our dear foreign minister has already spoken on the ineffectiveness of the UN Security Council just uh, yesterday, I think. So she's suggesting something needs to change because of exactly what you said. The UN Security Council is not working. Mm. Well, you know, if we're going to get down that path, I think we should remove the power of veto from the five permanent members of the Security Council. Yes, I'm not sure of the details of what she's suggesting, but she said something needs to change. That could be a fatal problem with the whole structure of it, but, uh, you know, it's there and you either play by the rules or you say, nope, we're not Mm. playing and it's a failed system and we're not part of it anymore. Mm. But in any event, imagine if the shoe was on the other foot, you know... uh, it wouldn't fit the other foot, Trevor, no. because they're made to fit right and left. Yeah, but, you That's know, the, the US government is killing how many of its own citizens via its own police force every day of the week? Yeah. And, you know, does that mean that some foreign power can start attacking them? It's Where do you stop? It's just... It just um, the thought that this is just going on in the world and nobody's batting an eyelid. That's the point we've reached. And... When Trump got elected, I said, maybe there's a good thing in this, in that we'll cease to be the US lapdog, because when he wants us to do stuff, maybe because it's Trump, we'll say, oh, hang on a minute, Mm, that's maybe not a good idea, just because it's coming from Donald Trump. Like, that was the hope. But with an acknowledged lunatic like that leading the charge, and we've still fallen into line. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. I can believe it, but I'm just... <laughs> You're going to have to believe it, because that's what we are. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I know what you mean, and I, I hear what you say, mm. and I tend to agree with a lot of what you're saying. Mm. I, I'm not sure why a someone being gassed to death is worse than someone being shot to death. Mm. I suppose there are long memories and that sort of stuff of the horror that was unleashed on the world at Ypres by the Germans and that sort of stuff in the First World War and then followed up by the British and the Yanks and everyone else that were using their chemical weapons in the First World War too. But, uh, yeah. I've, I've followed this social commentator and I like some of the stuff he's been saying. I'll just read out some of it for you. So... What will we get for bombing Syria besides more debt and a possible long-term conflict? And the president needs congressional approval. Good point. This is another thing, is that we've got leaders of countries doing these things without going back to their parliaments. Same person says, if the US attacks Syria and hits the wrong targets, killing civilians, there will be worldwide hell to pay. Stay away and fix broken US. And the third thing this commentator said was, Again, to our very foolish leader, do not attack Syria. If you do, many very bad things will happen, and from that fight, the US gets nothing! Exclamation mark. Who do you reckon the commentator is? It's Donald Trump from 2013. Of course, Talking about Obama. Yeah, and this has been reported recently in the media about his double standards, which we already knew about, but um, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So um, uh, the other thing, just, you know, for the water cooler expert on a Monday morning, you know, why is Syria in this position? Um, Got a link to an article here. Gives a little bit of the history of the Syrian conflict, which basically started in, in March 2011 when some students wrote some graffiti on a wall and were 
taken in by the state police. In Damascus. Um, southern city of Dera, D-E-R oh, apostrophe okay. A. Um, and they scrawled on the wall, it's your turn, doctor, which was a reference to the president, who's a doctor of ophthalmologist. Yes. Um, saying it was his turn to be overthrown because at the time there was sort of an Arab Spring occurring in other countries. And they got taken in and that's when the whole rebellion started, when mm. the students did that. Uh, quickly spread to other towns. But in this article, uh, talking about the Arab Spring that occurred in other countries and saying that one of the differences with Syria is that the people in charge are minorities and they're willing to commit any sort of atrocities on the wider population because they're not the same tribe. Whereas in somewhere like Egypt, the... the was it Mubarak in power? Was, Mubarak was, was in power, but was, he was overthrown in the Arab Spring. Yeah, but he was of a sect that was of the majority and so were the armed forces. So... You were then asking the armed forces and police to kill basically people of the same tribe and that causes a problem where they say, hang on a minute, I didn't sign up for that. Mm. Whereas in the Syrian situation where their Alawites and Shias and and other minority sects are in charge uh, and they're told, you know, you need to kill these Sunnis, well, they go, okay, probably deserve it anyway. So it's a different scenario there where you've got a, a minority power willing to commit atrocities against its own people. And the Alawites apparently are, are a sect that is um, somewhat related to the Shia, uh, which, yes. which is the dominant uh, sect yeah. in Iran, of course. Yeah, so there's a little subset of them. Yeah. So um, uh, when Donald... Fi- just finally, dear listener, on this one, this is the conclusion of Donald Trump's statement after he announced the, well, that they had bombed, they were going, I guess it was after he bombed. But anyway, this is the conclusion of it. So today, the nations of Britain, France, and the United States of America have marshaled their righteous power against barbarism and brutality. Tonight, I ask all Americans to say a prayer for our noble warriors and our allies as they carry out their missions. We pray that God will bring comfort to those suffering in Syria. We pray that God will guide the whole region toward a future of dignity and of peace. And we pray that God will continue to watch over and bless the United States of America. Thank you and good night. Thank you. References to God are a worry. (laughs) Particularly coming from a... A moral moron like Trump and righteous power. Mm. It was uh, it was very concerning, wasn't it? Mm. All right, matters closer to home. Commonwealth Games have just concluded on the Gold Coast, and there's <laughs> I an did inter- not watch a single event. Right. Well, <laughs> you went alone there. Didn't, didn't capture the attention of many people. Um, but an interesting athlete. Uh, a transgender weightlifter, Laurel Hubbard. So Laurel was a man for most of her life and was a weightlifter as a man and obviously built up a significant weightlifting physique and then had 
you know, change agendas, but obviously still carrying the benefit of years of testosterone. And she entered the competition and didn't actually win because she ended up dislocating her elbow or something like that. But gentlemen, I think, you know, if somebody has transgender issues, they have my sympathy in the difficulties that they face in life in having to change gender. But if you are wanting to engage in a sporting contest, then do it at an amateur level. So go into a gym and lift weights by all means and whatever, but you have to accept that you've you've received an unfair advantage and you really have to just give up hopes of professional sporting a professional sporting career in that sort of scenario i would have thought i tend to agree with you it's um you know it's my heart goes out to her and that sort of stuff because it is a difficult thing that these people have got to deal with it must be a bloody difficult road to hoe but I think you're right. I think that uh, if you were a man and then you decide to become a woman, you can't then go into a professional weightlifting thing because it's physiology. You know, you, men develop muscles that are larger and that sort of stuff than women do. And there's plenty of physical reasons why people just can't do a sport like a, a a five foot seven guy is just never going to be an NBA basketballer. Let's no, face it. You're, no, you know, so there's there's a matter of luck involved in athletic ability, and if you've had the bad luck of needing a gender change, then that's just part of the bad luck that you don't get to be a professional athlete. Absolutely, in that, in that sport or, mm. or in a sport that requires, uh, you know, you can be a shooter or something that doesn't require some sort of um, physical. Um, That's an interesting example. Do you think mm. that male shooters have any inherent advantage over females? I wouldn't have thought so. So why do they have separate sex categories for a sport like that? Don't why not just remove sex categories altogether? Yeah, for those sorts of sports, I think. Yeah, for all sense. of them. Well, for example, horse riding, they seem to be mixed gender. No, Are they? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, they were still separated. Is it? Yeah. Oh. Maybe I'm thinking of the team events or something like that. In, ho- in horse over. racing, yeah. certainly in Australia, they're, mm. they're, they're mixed, but um, I don't know about mm. um, jumping and things like that. Yeah, so... Well, there was another case, uh, that South African uh, woman who several years ago uh, was in the, in, the, in the news. Well, she was in the Commonwealth Games this time yes. where she had some she, sort of chromosomal and she won. situation Handsomely. happening. Yes, yeah. If I can put it like that. Yes, yes. Unfortunately for her, again, I think we have to say you have an unfair advantage that means that you just don't fit into this category. So, yeah, tough, very tough. Well, I, I tend to agree with you. Mm. It is brutal, but it is, it's a sad fact of life. And yet there was the, yeah, the spokesperson for the Commonwealth <clears throat> Games um, uh, defended her, I believe. And said there was a. Don't know what he said exactly, but uh, she's a lovely girl. She spent a few weeks with us at the institute. He said, uh, Secretary General of the Oceania Weightlifting Institute, Paul Coffer. 
It's a very sensitive question. The fact is the government of New Zealand has given her a passport for a female. Oh, that's for the weightlifter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I don't think that the gender on your passport should uh, should give you the right to compete in the women's no, sports. No, I think sporting organisations have to go a bit deeper than what the gender is on your passport. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Mm. And, and incur a lot of ire from oh. people who think it's a non-issue. Mm. Oh, you, can, you can hear it now. You, you, you can hear the um, social justice warriors saying uh, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove they're a pack of bastards you don't know. forget the 12th man and the 12th man yes I'm sorry uh, <laughs> um, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove and the 12th man they're a pack of bastards because they're out there saying this about this mm. poor transgender woman but I don't think it's right well that's uh, one athlete who has our sympathy anyway uh, both of those the, the weightlifter and the runner from South Africa but there's been another athlete in the news this week, dear listener, who does not get my sympathy. And this calls, of course, for the You Cannot Be Curious segment. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! And I'm referring, of course, to Israel Falau. Persecuted a righteous. Yes. So let's start with a little bit of background with Israel, Australian rugby union player, on his Twitter feed somebody asked him what was god's plan for gay people and he replied hell in capital in capital letters dot 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 unless they repent for their sins and turn to god and the person another person on the twitter feed said hell question mark just because someone's gay and anyway that kicked off quite a discussion and uh, basically, major sponsors of the Australian Rugby Union said, for example, Qantas said, hmm, not real happy about that. <laughs> starting to reconsider, um, starting to reconsider our sponsorship arrangement because that's not in line with uh, our ideas of a corporate citizenship. Qantas has said this afternoon that hmm. they're not going to alter their support for the team or anything like that. Yes. They are going to keep their sponsorship valid. But it did cause some grief because Alan Joyce, CEO of Qantas, gay, also a very big supporter of the Yes campaign, it um, it didn't look good. No. So lots of people on both sides of the fence saying, he can't say that. Why and can't he? Freedom of, freedom of expression, surely. Well, I tend to agree with Paul here. I think that um, I don't like what he said, but I will defend his right to say it. We don't have to like what everybody says. Mm. No, we don't. But his contract's up for renewal. Is the Australian Rugby Union entitled to say, you know what, it's more than just running around on a field catching a ball and, and whatever. There are other responsibilities go with the jumper, and you used to bring in a lot of money for us. But with those comments, you're actually losing us a lot of money. So we can't offer you now a million dollars a year or whatever. Really, we might be able to offer you 100 grand or something like that, 50, because you're actually costing us money. Um, are they entitled to say that? I think um, that was one of the conspiracy theories that was out there, was that he had um, 
gone off on social media because he was looking for an early termination of his contract so he could run back to the NRL. Well, it ends at the end of the year anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, he's only got one season left to go. So I think so. he's just a committed Christian who believes in stating what he, what he believes. I, I think he is as well. But the point is, people have said, oh, freedom of speech, he should be able to say whatever he likes. And I agree 100%. But also, freedom of running a business... You've got a contract. You can decide whether you're going to contract with him at the end of that contract or not, and it would be quite legitimate for the AOU to say, actually, you don't fit in with our goals anymore. We don't want you. Can you see a problem with that? No. Yeah. For example, the Brisbane Broncos have hired a, um, a front rower on, um, and he's got some bad history where he was uh, convicted of some nasty stuff in America and the victims went through hell and are waiting for compensation. And that's really causing them a, a big hit to their reputation, having him on the team. And many people have said they should never have signed him. And it would have been quite legitimate for them to have said, no, we don't want you because you don't fit in with what we're doing here. So, so for the people who say, oh, freedom of speech, Israel can say what he likes, I say... Exactly right. And freedom of speech for the ARU to be able to say, we don't want to hire you anymore at the end of this contract. He doesn't fit in with their values. Yeah, you're costing us. And we're a money-making business and we're promoting a game and you're actually detracting from all of that. Exactly. So On your bike. I wouldn't have a problem if they did actually say to him, on your bike. Mm. And and I think that would, um, you know... It's probably the easy way out for the ARU to get rid of him if they wanted to. Hmm. Another aspect is similar to what happened with the cricketers is, um, you know, they say these guys are role models for young children and uh, if they hold him up as a great hero of their game and he's making statements like that, then they would say, why why wouldn't young children ape his his behaviour and his statements? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that Israel Folau would say that he is being a role model to young people by yeah. saying what he is saying because his, his, his mind has been turned by Christianity. There's mm. no doubt about yeah. that. Mm. You know, and this is the thing that really did stick in my throat. I thought after the successful Yes campaign and that sort of stuff that all this would be behind us. But it's not because these no. fucking Christians will not let go. <laughs> it's not only the Christians. No. Yeah. By any means. Yeah. Anyway, he doubled down. So in a subsequent tweet, um, he came out with, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So he doubled down. He's Mm. not... not but look, you know, he's free to say that. But mm. what I'd like to know is why aren't some better informed people in the community, and I mean community leaders, pointing out that he is just uh, reciting the nonsense of primitive people who didn't know where the sun went at night. Um, why do people tolerate it? You know, I mean, they might sort of, you know, debate the merits of what he's of him saying it, but they won't actually inform the public that he's just talking primitive nonsense. That's well, that, what I'd like to hear people say. That would be disrespectful and exactly, offensive. Exactly, yes. 12th man. You can take away his contract, but you can't be disrespectful yes. <laughs> about his superstition. I reckon you can be disrespectful. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's a bit provocative, Scott. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I think you should be able to be disrespectful. You should be able to point out that this book was written 2,000 years ago and it was nonsense 
you know, it was it, it's been found to be nonsense in the it's modern nonsense, age. Nonsense, then it's nonsense, nonsense now. now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a link to an article from the Stirrer where uh, this guy makes the point that Falau used to be a Mormon. Oh, did he? Yes, and he converted to. Um, well, what this guy, he says, he used to be a Mormon, now he's a Pentecostal. If properly mentored, he might in time abandon the narrow, toxic version of Christianity into which he has currently chosen to straightjacket himself. He might change gods again. Might become a Muslim. Might do. But this guy makes the point that possibly one reason why I fell out change religion is that the Mormons are very racist. They don't... Uh, for a long time now, they would not allow black people into mm. the religion, and they only changed their minds when the government said, we're going to take away your um, tax-exempt tax status. So the Mormons came kicking and screaming to um, allowing blacks into the faith. That was and, in the United States, of course. Yes, yeah. Yeah, look, the, Mormons, the Mormon uh, superstition is very strong in certain parts of the South Pacific, I believe. Yes. Including Indonesia. Tonga, mm. yes. I think. yeah. Now, I don't know Falau's uh, ancestry exactly where in the South Pacific he's from, but mm. he's clearly, you know, has South Pacific ancestry. Yeah. Um, and Christianity in general is deeply entrenched in a lot of South Pacific countries. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, he's quoting the Bible and, and quoting his strong commitment to his faith, but it wasn't that long ago he was a Mormon and dropped that, so who knows what might happen. Mm. Um, I once dated a Mormon. Did you? Hmm. And he was from the South Pacific too. Right. Hmm. (laughs) Why don't these South Pacific people, if they're so, you know, culture proud, why don't they go back to their pre-Christian culture? Wouldn't that be more authentic? Well, one would have thought so. Final word on this. Lots of people saying that the ARU needs to be more inclusive, which I find is ironic. How can they do that? Well, inclusive of people with alternative viewpoints. And I just think it's ironic that the ARU is being asked to be inclusive of exclusive people. So <laughs> that's such, such is the world we're living in now. Yeah. It beggars belief, doesn't it? Yeah. So anyway, for the final word on Israel Folau. I'm going to award a point against you, Mr McEnroe. Point against you, Mr. Falau. Right, gentlemen, of course, what Falau was quoting from there in one of his tweets was from the Beatitudes, I think. One of the, um, you know, blessed are you who are persecuted, etc., etc. So, New Testament? Um, yeah, Matthew. And Scott is an expert on Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. You yeah. knew that, didn't you, Scott? No, yeah. I didn't, actually, right. but anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit worried because I sent you some homework and I said, you know, you know, oh, yeah, look at the faces now. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, I forgot about that. You're going to have to do it off the top of your heads now. But when we're talking about ethics and there were these two strains of thinking, one was... In this situation, you must do this, and in this situation, you must do that, and sort of action-based ethics. And the other one was more of a vibe that you should be have a spirit of being forgiving or loving or something like that. So 
Jesus and the Beatitudes and that was more of the vibe, whereas the Old Testament was more of, in this situation, do this or don't do that sort of thing. And it was just a different way of thinking ethically. And I set you both homework and said, well, if we're talking about virtues, was there any particular virtue that you would rate above any others? And to set the scene, I simply did a quick Google search of virtues. And the sort of thing we're talking about here is, it's a long list, but acceptance, authenticity, caring, cleanliness, commitment, compassion, confidence, contentment, cooperation, courage, creativity, determination, enthusiasm, excellence, faith, uh, friendliness, graciousness, honesty, humility, justice, kindness, loyalty, modesty. These are all sorts of virtues. So... Gentlemen, any that would stick out to you if we were talking about a virtue? None were in that list that I mm. came up with, but I thought charity. Right. Being charitable to people. Mm-hmm. Because it gets you an, uh, a, tax, um, a tax benefit. No. It's for a tax benefit. There's no point spending a dollar to save 50 cents. Mm-hmm. You know, so. <laughs> but in the hierarchy of virtues, you would rate charity as being a high one. I would have rate that highly, yeah. Mm. What about you, talking then? I thought about this a little bit. Uh-huh. I have to say, over the last several years, I've come to value honesty uh-huh. a lot. Um, there you go, honesty. Mm. Oh, I agree with you. That was my top one at the moment, would be honesty. Because even when we're dealing with, um, say, the very religious people, if they have an honestly held belief and I can, I can spend time with them. And you can respect them. I can respect them, and I can, I can get it. But when people are dishonest, that's when I, I really have. I don't want to spend any time with them at all. So for me, if people are truly honest in their thinking, then that's the main part. But if you can't trust people as to what they're saying, then that for me is the big problem. So yeah, agree. And I think as you get older. Um, you tend to value it even more and Absolutely, more, I think. Yeah. yeah as you... Particularly when you get burned. Yes, you get burned by a bit of dishonesty a bit along of the dishonesty way. and it can ruin friendships, mm. it can destroy trust. Mm. It does a, a whole lot of bad things to you, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. The other one was um, humility I quite value as well. So I really despise arrogance and pride, like... Uh, We've got a, a Chinese homestay boy staying with us, and he loves NBA basketball players. And I'm just trying to tell him that the sort of trash talking that they do is just a terrible way of holding yourself and, you know, conducting yourself with more modesty and with a better attitude to your fellow players is a much better thing than, than the sort of trash talking and the put-downs that these guys tend to do with each other. And pride's an interesting one because you hear this a lot these days, people saying, I'm proud of my culture, I'm proud of my religion, I'm proud of this, I'm proud of that. And and, and what does it really mean? You're proud of being right-handed? Exactly, yeah. Having grey hair? Proud of having, you know, two ears. Yeah, Mm. yeah. It's a pure accident, yeah. So anyway, that was Virtues. Um, 
coming up next week, Anzac Day. Hmm. You both go to a ceremony in the morning? I go to a dawn service every year, yeah. Every right. year? Mm. Wow. What about you, 12th man? I haven't been since my mum took me as a child, to be quite mm. honest. But, mm. look, I have a lot of respect for veterans and mm-hmm. their families who do, you know, show their, their respect and their honour of people who sacrifice their, their lives or their limbs or whatever. Mm. Um, I have an old mate who was in the Australian military and we t- we've talked about military matters and sacrifice uh, quite a lot over the years and, uh, yeah, I've learnt to... to re- well, I don't know if I didn't have any respect, but certainly my, my friendship with him has deepened that respect that I have for those people, right or wrong, you know, whether they're in... On on the side of on the side of right or or not, then yeah. I, I... Well, I commend going to a dawn service, twelfth man. It's a worthwhile thing to do. Do you go? Mm. Never used to until our children sort of got leadership positions at the schools, you know, and they would be attending, so we would go as well. And we went, boy, this is really important. Like we should be going. So. Um, so we've been going for the last twenty years or something like that. Probably. Can you so, distill uh, the essence of 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 the, of the meaning of showing that respect to those people? You have to um, look beyond the Christianity of the whole thing, the service and that sort of stuff. It is very much a church service outside of church, but there is a hell of a lot you can get out of it, though. Oh, absolutely, and obviously for guys like us, the Christianity is quite superficial and not particularly significant. But, um, I mean, I can assume that we're not particularly in favour of war and fighting and killing people. No, we're not. But at the same time, you know, people, they, they, they gave themselves for the community, for the wider community, and that's a, an incredible... It's a good opportunity to stop and think and reflect. Yes. Again. And I mean, the, the guys that went over there, they went over there to France and, and Turkey and that sort of stuff. They went over there fighting for God, King and Empire. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can remove that and distill it down. You can say, well, it was for Australia that they went and that type of thing. They answered the call, which was Britain's call, but it was still, you know, it, it the- was still a right... There are conflict. elements that we can, if we looked a bit deeper, we probably wouldn't feel too comfortable about, particularly the tribalism of it all. Absolutely, yeah. True. Yeah. And yet we, we do. We do respect them, don't we? Yeah, but what for a while we've been saying one of the problems with the atheist rationalist movement is that we don't have that social bonding experience that the churches have getting people together every Sunday or whatever. Mm. And this can be a sort of non-religious bonding experience for the community that you can participate in. So having said that, it's appalling the amount of Christianity <laughs> that is in the service and 12th man, you should get, go just to experience how many Christian prayers are said at these services. And that's my point, dear listener. Your homework, dear listener, is if you are attending a service, please get a copy of the of the order of service and scan it, photograph it and send me a copy because 
over the years I've accumulated them and examined them for the amount of religiosity in them. And in particular, if you find a service that's got some great secular poems and songs and stuff like that, great, because uh, it's appalling the amount of Christianity that's in pretty regular Anzac Day service. They've completely overtaken the service. And if you look at some of the services from... Oh, look, back to the very first services that were held, they were much more secular in those days. And they had, you know, archbishops speaking, but they spoke in very secular terms. So our Anzac Day ceremony is much more religious than it was way back when it first started. So there you go, dear listener. Grab the order of service for me and send me a copy and let me know, let us know what your experience was at an Anzac Day with with the religious elements of it. Last year I was down in Canberra for it and I went to the um, dawn service at the War Memorial. That would have been good. It was very good, yeah. Mm. Yeah, very... I thoroughly recommend it, actually. Mm. Everyone should go do it before they die. <laughs> but um, it was it was very much a, um, a church service outside of church, though. It was... Um, that, that, that was despite the fact that, you know, you had my cousin's son's name up there and that sort of stuff because he was killed in Afghanistan. Mm. So, you know, there was a fair amount of personal feeling for me there. Mm. But it was uh, it was very powerful. So mm. I recommend to everyone, if you can get to Canberra for a dawn service one day before you die, then I recommend you do that. Right. Was it a big crowd to deal with? Was it, was it too big? No? Oh! <laughs> I didn't get a seat. Right. No, um, but you're... But, you know, it, it wasn't too bad. Okay. And, I was just staying in town, so I walked up there and walked back and that sort of stuff. It was mm. quite it was quite good. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Can I just mention in popular culture there have been a number of songs um, about war in general and particularly the First World War and one that I find very moving and I've always found it very moving every time I hear it and the band played Waltzing Matilda yes. written by Eric Bogle. Yep. Amazing song. It is, yeah. Um, and it's not at all religious. Mm. And there is another one that he wrote, um, which I I just don't recall the name of it, but also about um, going to a grave in a, you know a cemetery, a war cemetery in France, and reading the the name and the particulars of a of a dead soldier in the grave. And he was mm. he was like. 17 or 18 when he died and mm. and he it's very poignant and the line in the song that really moves me you know it's the basically the chorus it's something like um did they play a certain song as they lowered you into the ground you know i forget mm. the, but uh, it's very moving yeah and those that were left while well, we tried to survive in that mad world of blood, death and fire And for ten weary weeks I kept myself alive Though around me the corpses piled higher Then a big turkey shell knocked me arse overhead And when I woke up in me hospital bed And saw what it had done well, I wished I was dead Never knew there was worse things than dying For I'll go, no more waltzing the 
Matilda All around the green bush far and free To hum tents and pegs A man needs both legs No more waltzing Matilda for me So they gathered the crippled, the wounded, the maimed And they shipped us back home to Australia The legless, the armless, the blind, the insane Those proud wounded heroes of Suvla And as our ship pulled into Circular Quay I looked at the place where me legs used to be And thank Christ there was nobody waiting for me To grieve, to mourn and to pity But the band played waltzing Matilda As they carried us down the gangway I find the good secular songs and poems, um, you know, of course I'm biased, but honestly they talk to the essence of the moment, whereas the religious ones invariably are just appraising God. It's it's the same sentiment. They don't get with the guts of what's going on. They bypass it to the the glory of God. It's it's incredible, isn't it, how they attribute glory to God for everything, no matter how obscenely ghastly it is. Mm. Mm. And yet, you know, songs like the ones I mentioned, you know, they... They get to the tragedy, the sheer human tragedy of the of the moment. Mm. Mm. Yep, much more meaningful, in mm. my opinion. If I get a chance, I'll play a bit at the end of the podcast. Mm. Mm. Now, somewhere where God isn't as important on this planet is China, and we've got three articles dealing with China. I read a lot of science fiction when I was a teenager, and. I can distinctly remember a particular story, and I've been trying to find it to relay on this podcast, but the idea of it was that in this futuristic world, there was a potential to become immortal. Um, They had drugs and chemicals and procedures that they could convert you into an immortal being. And in order to get to that stage, you had to earn social credit points and prove yourself worthy of it. God, so, want it. so yes, good point. Very good point. So there was a class of people in the world who were doing everything they could to um, gain social credit points um, before they, you know, expired, so that they could get this immortality treatment. And I think you know, if they were going okay, they might have got some sort of life extension things to help them along. Then there were other people who um, who had really given up. They'd never intended to go for the immortality route, so they just uh, really enjoyed life and had lots of money to spend because they weren't <laughs> worried about doing good deeds and made through parties and, and it was a short life, but it was a good one sort of thing, whereas these other people were racked by this continual need to improve their social standing and check out their point score. I really remember this novel. Well, blame me down... Something along those lines is starting to happen in China. 
with this social credit score. And I've got a link to an article here which came to me from Right Wing Tony. Did I say I might have sent this one to you guys? You did I, I did it, send yeah. it. So mm-hmm. this is in a, a, a city, Rongjing in China, and relatively newish sort of city by the it seems. But the city hall is a glass building, resembles a flying saucer, and you go there to get your permits for whatever you need from city hall, and it's a one stop shop. And at at this particular city hall, the residents can go in and pick up their social credit score. So every citizen in this town has a score as to how they're performing um, with their social credits. And um, what happens is that online payment providers will use it. Uh, High flyers receive perks such as discounts on heating bills and favourable bank loans, while bad debtors cannot buy high-speed train or plane tickets. So... Your, your score is being referred to by different private and public groups. And just to give you an idea, the system they've devised assigns a thousand points at the beginning of each, uh, at the beginning to each of the 740,000 residents. If you get a traffic ticket, you lose five points. If you earn a city level award, such as for committing a heroic act, doing exemplary business or helping your family in unusually tough circumstances, you might get a boost of 30 points. And if you donate to charity or do volunteering, you can win bonus points. So... Or dive in an enemy of the state. (laughs) Quite possibly, yes. So depending on their score bracket, residents hold a grade rating from A triple plus to D. Some offences can hurt the score pretty badly. For example, uh, drink driving, you plummet immediately to a C. People on an A can get, uh, they can rent public bikes without paying a deposit and get $50 off their heating discounts and things like that. So, gentlemen, I find this a scary Orwellian future that's arrived in China. It is. It is very Orwellian. Mm. You know, it's, um, (laughs) and here it is in the, in the, the only socialist country left on earth, you know. (laughs) I just wonder if the Orwell's famous, you know, dystopian story 1984 is available in China. I I wonder. I don't know. I don't know either. Couldn't tell you. Mm. But they really are building it, aren't they? And, Mm. you know, the Premier or the President or the Secretary, is now leader for life. Mm. One advantage is that in this particular city, cars now stop for pedestrians at crosswalks, ah. which does not happen anywhere else. It sure doesn't. It no. doesn't. Not, not in Beijing, that's for no. sure. I, was, mm. I went walking from my brother's place once and I tried to cross the road and I thought, yeah. stuff it, I'm getting a cab. Take your life into yeah, your hands. It's ridiculous. They're quoting this 32-year-old guy who says, for example, when we drive now, we always stop in front of crosswalks. If you don't stop, you will lose your points. At first, we just worried about losing points, but now we got used to it. <laughs> so there's so a silver lining to this. Yeah, it has uh, some positive aspects to it. Mm. Yeah, but, I mean, you, you can do that... You can do that through fines and that sort of stuff. You don't need to penalise exactly. people with their points. Yes. You know, it's. I like yeah. what we were talking about last time, which was um, 
income adjusted uh, penalty point penalties yeah, for exactly. traffic offences and mm. things like yeah. that. And maybe not just traffic offences, but for any sort of offences. Maybe they should be all income adjusted. Mm. Still on the China, still on sort of an Orwellian future, there was a 31-year-old guy who was wanted by the police and he's in China and he's Chinese and let's face it, they all look the same. So it'd be easy to get lost, wouldn't it, in a sea of faces. How would they ever find you? With, and in this particular with guy... facial recognition technology, of course. Indeed. So this guy went to a stadium to watch a pop concert and, you know, it's... We're talking a country of 1.4 billion people. We've got 5 million in this particular city, of which 60,000 went to this concert and they had facial recognition operating as people came in and spotted him as a wanted man. And during the middle of the concert, some police walked down the aisle and said, you're nicked, mate, (laughs) in the the Chinese equivalent. And, um, wow. I don't have a problem with facial recognition being used like that. <laughs> you know, if, you because if you haven't done anything wrong. If you haven't done anything wrong, you're okay. But if you've done mm. something wrong, then you've got to expect the long arm of the law is going to get you. The problem, the problem with it, of course, if I can butt in, is mm. um, if you are uh, unlucky enough to be living in a single-party state like China... They're the ones who decide who are the bad people and who are the Absolutely. good people. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that, that, is, that is a problem if you live in China. A political sure. dissident. Exactly. A political yeah. dissident could be picked up with it. There's no, no doubt about Cast that. your mind back to the 1980s when the, the, the idea of a, an Australia card was toyed with. Mm. by the Hawke government, I believe. Mm. And there was a huge uproar, people saying, no, 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 this is mm. going down the totalitarian state path. Mm. And I think they were, on the whole, correct mm. to reject it. Yep. But, of course, now we have the Medicare card yep. and we have driver's licences yep. and, you know, they have our information anyway. But facial recognition technology, yeah, it has its... It has its uses, of course. I mean, you might employ it, for example, at airports mm. to yeah, pick out potential terrorists. Yep. In I, a country like Australia, which has a liberal democracy and that sort of stuff, I don't have a problem with it being used by law enforcement to, like you say, go up and say, you're a niche, mate. So yeah. long as there are those checks and balances that protect the innocent. Absolutely. You've got to have those checks and balances, but we do have them generally here. Mm. You know. yeah. you, Whereas probably, they don't in China. No, they don't in China. There's no doubt about that. You know, China is a brutal one-party state. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, so it could be used and abused in China. I'm not saying it would be abused here in Australia. Except by the Australian Taxation Office. I'm reluctant to give power because I just don't trust them down the track. I don't either, to be honest. Not completely. Well, that's fine. Uh, 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 I can understand your point of view. You might be right. I could be wrong. But I just worry about giving power to government too easily. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's quite a reasonable position to take. There's no mm. doubt about that. But you know, in in the UK, they've been doing it for a long time now with soccer games because of soccer hooligans. Mm. So they have known hooligans who they don't allow in the stadium. So they ban them for that particular purpose. So that's been going on for a while over there. Mm. 
So in Australia, they would probably apply it to people who shout racial slurs at football matches. Yeah, or at cricket matches. You know, and I'm not saying that's a great thing, but what I'm saying is uh, the, the reaction you know, to some girl in the crowd mm. yelling at some burly football player is yeah. just amazing, isn't it? The, the problem is, given the behaviour of some of our sporting stars, perhaps they'd be picked up by the footage and, and, not, and not allowed in themselves. You know. <laughs> For snorting cocaine or getting too yeah, drunk yeah, on the or, weekend. Or just being for cheats. You know, okay, <laughs> not letting him in the stadium. Like Michael, you know, what was, he, was, the, was the current captain, oh, Smith, or whatever his name yeah. was? Yeah, won't allow him. He's a known cricket cheat. Yes. So he shouldn't be allowed in the stadium. Yeah. So he's been he's been mm. entered into the database. You asked whether 1984 is available in China oh, yeah. to purchase. Well, one book that is a bit more difficult to buy these days is the Bible. Apparently, so, yes. yeah. So the Chinese government has banned online sales of the Bible. Only online. Yes. So you can still you can still buy it at church-run bookstores. Yes, but. Um, I don't recall. You can't buy it online. Online, so, and I'm assuming you can't also buy it just at an ordinary bookstore. Yeah, I don't think so. It has to be through a religious mm. um, group, church sort of thing. So that way they can keep tabs on who's selling the Bibles in uh, China. So, so yeah, so it's three articles in China, which gives me an excuse to play one of my favourite tunes. I like Chinese. I like Chinese. They only come up to your knees Yet they're always friendly and they're ready to please That's, <laughs> that's racist. <laughs> it is. <laughs> the stuff that those guys did, they no way they would get away with half of it these days, the Monty no. Python crew. You know, I, I yeah. saw an interview with uh, Roger Moore and he was talking about how things have changed and that sort of stuff. And he says, can you imagine having a script today with a, yes. a female talent in it called Pussy Galore? <laughs> you know? Yes. And he said, no one would let you put it on screen. And yeah. he's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, the life of Brian, you, could, you, you couldn't make it today. No. You, you just wouldn't get it on the screen. Mm. So, uh, so, yeah, they got away with far more than anything we could do now. So there we go. Um, I had a little article here tagged just about the robo-calling in the Batman by-election. So yeah, that we was had the, disgraceful, wasn't it? We seemingly had the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria doing a robo-calling to encourage the good citizens of Batman to vote for Labor. It's a worrying sign when Catholic education groups, who may well be funded by government money as well as parental donations or a combination of both um, are doing robo-calling for a political party. Very worrying. It really stuck in my throat when it mm. came out that they had made 30,000 robo-calls in Batman. Mm. And I said to my better half at the time, I said, your lot are in on this. Your lot have gone, your lot are the ones, <laughs> I said, you lot are the ones that went to them and said that we stand shoulder to shoulder with the bishops. Yes. And look what they've done. They have paid you back now. Right. You know, yeah. it was bloody disgraceful and Labor should feel very much ashamed of themselves. Yeah. What do you think about robocalls? Oh, look, I, I hang up on them. 
Mm. You know, when they when, when they do ring me, I just hang up. How do you t- how, how can you tell it's a robocall? I don't well, think I've ever had one. It just starts off saying, "Hi, we're calling on behalf of." You know, you just hang up. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. don't respond to your um, interjections. Exactly. No. Yeah. No. Oh, I don't think I've ever received one. Mm. Well, they don't call mobiles. They generally just call your landline. Oh, okay. I don't mm. have a landline. Mm. So, yeah, so it'd be interesting to see where the money came from for that little exercise. There's a fair chance it could have been some government money. Mm. Well, it's... From Cathay. Yeah, absolutely, it was. It was payback mm. because, you know, a week before the robocalls came out, Shorten said, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the Catholic bishops. Typical Shorten. Mm. He'll say anything to get elected. Mm. Well, this is what I've said to my better half. I said to him, this is wrong. And he says, no, he's just saying it to get elected. Right. Well, well, what's yeah. right about that? <laughs> no, he, he reckons, and look, you know, God bless him, but he thinks he God, has a... Uh, God bless him. Oh, sorry. He think, he's got a very, very uh, bright look on this. He said, he said you know, that they'll, they'll get elected, they'll, they'll do what they have to do, and then they're going to turn their back on them. And I said, no, nah, they won't, you know, because they've got to pay them back. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely friggin' disgraceful that they have turned their back on Gonski 2.0 and they have said that, you know, we're going to re, re-bring... We're going to bring back the whole sweetheart deals with the Catholics. It's mm. wrong. Mm. Mm. Speaking of robo, robots or bots, uh, remember how we've been talking, dear listener, in over recent months about the high number of downloads to Japan... <laughs> and you, 12th man, you know, when I was heading over there, did a special little call out to all of our Japanese listeners. And Trevor's going to be there, you know, make him wel- welcome. And we didn't hear a thing. <laughs> well, I contacted the company who does the stats for the downloads and they host the podcast. And I said, these stats, it just doesn't add up that I've got all these Japanese um, downloads. And, guys, there's good news and bad news. <laughs> Give us the bad news first. <laughs> well, the good news is there's an answer, and that is that there was some sort of Japanese bot that was downloading podcasts from everywhere for some reason. I don't know why. And these guys found out about it and they filtered it out of the system from about November, and if I look now, there's only like three or four downloads to Japan. Right. So the bad news is that our number of listeners are about a third of what third less than what I thought they were. <laughs> oh dear. And what's the good news? We have an answer. Oh, okay. So that's it. You know, so what are was, our latest listener statistics? Uh, well, you know, it used to be 300, but maybe now it's closer to 200. So, okay. yeah, we'll have to look at it. So there we go. So, but at least, you know, three or four of them are in Japan. Yeah. Well, Ayame's there. So, and I was there, you know. Did I download? No, I wouldn't have downloaded any. Does Ayame, um, you know, encourage his, his or her friends I don't to know. listen? I don't know. Let's hope. You might increase uh, last, it to five or six. Apparently, once the bot was filtered out, there was only three or four downloads. So, mm-hmm. Ayame, pull your finger out, mate, and start <laughs> Spread the word. spreading the word. Yeah. So, that's the story there. Uh, while we're on the topic of uh, patrons, because, of course, Ayame is one, I'll run through the list. And thank you to our patrons, uh, 
from 2016, but the ones who were with us a long time, Sean, Alex and Janelle. By the way, Janelle, your comment about paying people to go to the hospital, um, that was a really a cracker. And my son thought that was brilliant. So I know you didn't like it yourself that much, but it was a very interesting idea. So good on you. It was a very interesting idea. Yeah. I'm not convinced of it, but it is an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Would you go if you were paid? I'd go anyway. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm one of these idiots that goes once a year. I go and bleed into a vial and then get the vaccination, blah, 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 once a oh, year. Okay. And mm. I also get stripped down to my jocks to get moles checked and blah, 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 blah. Right, yep. So I do that once a year on my birthday. That's sensible. I can see why you're an accountant, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you've got to see what's coming at you, don't you? <laughs> Tick those boxes, do it religiously on time. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. You do that on your birthday. Yeah, I do. So that way I don't Why forget. on your birthday? Well, that oh, way I don't forget. doesn't forget. Yeah. And what other things do you do on your birthday so you, you won't forget it? <laughs> there must be something else. There must be. We'll find out later. No, I, me and Brian go out to dinner and that's about it. So, yeah. so that you won't forget to go out exactly. to dinner. Yeah. Right. There we go. Also, uh, patrons who started with us back in 2017, Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, Anonymous and Alison, and those who have joined us this year, uh, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, James, Craig, Jimmy, James and Jimmy Spud, and also a couple who, um, who don't do it through Patreon. One guy does it through just a PayPal payment. Ken, thanks very much. And another Ken who... Um, one of my suppliers, and when I go to the warehouse and pick up some stuff, he slips me $20 or something every now and again. So to you as well, Ken, I'll be around soon to collect. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Okay, so that's our patrons. Um, next topic. Oh, um, you will recall two weeks ago I mentioned that when I um, have received a voice message from Landon Hardbottom, yeah. that uh, I do a Google search and I have that tab open on the browser to remind me we've got to play something from Landon. And I mentioned that when you Google Landon Hardbottom, then there's a number of... Well, <laughs> we turn up as the first three sites for Landon Hardbottom, but then after that uh, we've got... Um, the fourth one here is free gay hard bottom porn videos. <laughs> Next one, rock hard bottom breed outside huge load triple X porn tube video. And then the one after that, so blonde it hurts. Watch now. And that, that gives you a bit of a flavour for, <laughs> for what happens when you Google um, land and hard bottom. And dear listener, sit back because we've received a message from Landon. Uh, here it is. The leisure. Um, do a Google search on Landon Hardbottom. <laughs> and, and what yes, Gerald, what's that you're saying? You're doing a Google search? Well, yes, I know it could be me, but it's not me. Well, of course it's not me. Well, lots of people have a tattoo of a boot on the throat of the working man. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not me, Cheryl. Oh, Cheryl? Cheryl, don't, no. Oh, not my John Howard commemorative shot glasses. Oh, come on now. 
Cheryl. It's not smut. It's art. It's art, Cheryl. It's it's art. <laughs> oh, fist, glove, twelfth man. You've just made it to the top of the hard bottom shit list. <laughs> Thank you very much, Landon. Uh, well, seeing we've made it to the top of the shit list, we'll um, see if we can maintain our position there. Yeah. Landon. <laughs> it's quite an honour, really, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. Where do you go to from there? John Howard commemorative shot glasses. <laughs> Everyone's got a tattoo of a foot on the throat of a working man. <laughs> Dear listener, sometime in June or July, we'll be getting together with Landon at a bar somewhere in Brisbane. We will keep you informed. Patrons will be the first to know. So um, so there we go. All right. Um, I've got an article here about uh, Aboriginal religion and the freedom from religion Inquiry. Did I send you guys this one? You did. So what we've got, uh, guys and dear listener, is in some traditional Aboriginal spiritual religious practices, they've got secrets. We've all heard of the secret women's business mm-hmm. to dealing with that sort of island and the bridge and all the rest of it. And what you've also got is at times if you're required to justify that you are a religion, you need to explain what your tenets are and your doctrine in order to qualify as a religion. And this Aboriginal groups would say, well, we don't want to tell you what they are because they're a secret. <laughs> so you've got this bit of a catch-22 where they say, well, we are a religion, but we just can't tell you what we think because that's part of our religion. That's white man's rules. It's not fair. Correct. So this guy made a submission to the inquiry on religious freedom saying that that is not adequately covered by the current laws. So Aboriginal people are at a disadvantage. Um, At the risk of sounding too much like the Iron Fist in that situation, I think, well... If you're not prepared to discuss what the tenets are of your religion, then you can't expect anything from the government on that. I really found very little sympathy for him. Mm. But if they disclose, they've destroyed the some sort of inherent value of the secret. Correct. Wouldn't be a secret anymore if it wasn't secret. That's right. Yeah. Well, bugger it. We, yeah. we don't have secrets. And in they fact, do. they're not true adherents if they disclose the secret. Ah. So they would no longer be... They would be like heretics. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that's one of the many conundrums facing the Ruddock inquiry. I thought that was an interesting one. Yeah. Mm. Good luck with that one, yeah. Mr Ruddock. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, Donald Trump... He's proposing to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But the latest on that is 
He's decided it's not a good idea after all. Oh, has he? Yeah. Oh, it was okay. in the news just today. Or it was so. this evening. I heard it on the way over. There was, there was some throwaway line that he had said that it wasn't a good deal, therefore he wasn't... He wasn't enthusiastically about. He wasn't enthusiastic about rejoining. I don't believe a word he says about anything. No, it's just, not but at it all. Just, it just annoys me that this goddamn TPP just keeps popping its head up. It's impossible to kill. Mm. Impossible. Well, we've already signed up to it with eleven of the thirteen. So. Yeah. Another person who's hard to keep out of the headlines: our old friend Yasmin Abdel Majid. <laughs> Is she some sort of media tart or what? <laughs> she's rocked up at a US airport because she's there to do some speaking at a paid, as a paid speaker at some conference. And she's got some sort of tourist visa. She doesn't have a proper working visa. So have you ever been to the US, 12th Man? Never, no. Scott, you have. I have, yeah. Mm. They're not... What you'd call the friendliest people, no, the US customs. Even if you rock up as an Aussie on a perfectly legitimate tourism holiday with the proper visa, they look you up and down Absolutely. and just with complete suspicion yeah, and, re- and, and really reluctantly let you in. Yeah. Uh, there's no have a nice day, enjoy your trip exactly. when you get into the you, United you States. <laughs> You're fingerprinted, all that yeah. sort of stuff before you mm. walk through. That before you walk through, and then you mm. get through to see customs, and it, it takes around about forty-five minutes from the time you get to the front of the queue to when you're actually on US soil. Really? That yeah. Long? yeah. Wow. And it's it's they're not friendly about it at all. They're really quite ugly about it. Mm. So um, it's like you know where they're doing you the favour by letting you in. Yeah. You know, there was an Australian woman, a you know mature aged Australian woman who was. Was she uh, some sort of writer or some such thing? Sounds familiar from a few years ago. Yeah, she had some some unpleasant experience there too because she was... Was she given some sort of honorarium or something for her speech or something? And they challenged her the validity of the visa that she was, was travelling. Was it the one oh. who did the possum one? Mem, is it Mem, Fo- been, yeah. Mem Fox and the possum, ma- like possum magic story? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I remember yeah, that. She got yeah. sent back, or yeah, yeah well, but denied. I don't think she was yeah. sent back, but she she was interrogated. Yes, for some time. Yes, uh, and she said very rudely by people who yeah. uh, said she didn't have the correct visa. Right. Did she put it down to her identity and uh, victim status because of that? I don't think she did. I think she put it down to their rudeness and officiousness. Well, Yasmin did anyway. So Mm. she said, well, guess that tightening of immigration laws business is working despite my Australian passport. So she is implying that she was singled out because of her uh, colour. Yeah. When really, Yasmin, anybody rocking up at US Customs... um, Anglo-Saxon white fellas like me get into all sorts of trouble if you're on the wrong visa or you got the wrong stuff. So exactly. you weren't singled out because of your identity. Exactly. He really gave me the shits when I read that. I hope I that think. makes Yasmin feel better when she listens to the podcast. Yeah, I think <laughs> it might do. Yeah. But, you know, she can't expect to get in because she arrived there on a tourist visa when she was getting paid to, to speak at something. She, she should have turned up on a business visa, shouldn't she, or something yeah, like that? that's yeah. right. I mean, she's got agents and people who are in charge of that stuff, so that's what she should have done. Yep. Um, I've got a link to an article from our old friend Kenan Malik, and he has made a reference to a play 
Um, have you ever heard of Katie Hopkins? No, I hadn't. Yes, she's a political type, isn't she? Or a Very pro-right wing. Or a journalist. A right wing commentator at least, maybe a journalist as well, I think, in the UK. Mm. And yes, right wing. And somebody wrote a play called The Assassination of Katie Hopkins. So she's a live person. Somebody's written a play about her assassination. And the gist of the play is that this person, uh, after the death of Katie Hopkins, has to write some nice things about her as an obituary or something. And then learning about her discovers that she actually quite liked how she conducted herself and um, that's the sort of guts of the story. Quite strange to write a play about the death of a person who's still alive Mm. in that situation. So Katie Hopkins wasn't too pleased, so she said that um, if you are black, you are protected by your colour. Um... She wrote at the beginning of the year, and if you're Muslim, by your religion. But as a straight white conservative, I'm an acceptable target, unprotected by my honesty and fair game for physical attack. So uh, yeah, she's a hard line right winger. Um, and anyway, Ken Malik, he's just got such a good way of words on different things. So in commentating about this, he said he's making analogies with society, etc. He says, This tribal quality to debate can be seen in almost every sphere of public life from Brexit to Zionism. The problem is not polarisation as such. Politics, after all, is about taking sides. But the shallowness of political debate and attachments. It seems to matter less what people say than to which political or cultural tribe they belong Inevitably, this is cut against a willingness both to listen to others and to scrutinise our own beliefs. Debate too often has become reduced to a ritual of provoking outrage and of being outraged. The kind of social interaction that began as online trolling seems to have invaded much of the public sphere. And this is as true of the right as it is of the left. It's a very good right. It's just a good turn of phrases, isn't it? So anyway... Not new ideas, but again, well said by Ken and Malik. Tribalism dominates the discussion. Mm. Can't talk about things on their merits. It's just, yeah. which tribe are you? Indeed. Mm. Um, oh, and he also makes another one where if you're trying to sort of uh, describe this in a nutshell, you could really refer to it as the difference between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Hmm. So Martin Luther King, of course, famous for his statement about judging people by the content of their character rather than the colour of their skin. Hmm. Malcolm X was more of blackfellas unite against the enemy, that sort of notion. So um, King was about... Uh, social justice for the working class generally and was against the Vietnam War generally, not just because blacks were dying but because others were dying and it was more of a a widespread, less tribal and just more social justice view of the world, whereas the Malcolm X view was a very tribal view. So that's the sort of thinking we're trying to promote, I think, is more of a Martin Luther King 
less the religiosity. Exactly. And um, and less of a and what seems to be dominating nowadays is the Malcolm X approach of tribalism. Certainly seems to be, and uh, our friend Yasmin, I think, is a subscriber to that um, line of thought, isn't she? She is. Yeah, she'll blame um, her being booted out of America on her race um, mm-hmm. when it would be nothing to do with it. And then she'll call for um, guidance and advice from his but Taria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We should go to the UK equivalent of them. Yeah. We, got, yeah. we got a uh, testimonial from Ms McIntosh that says, Hi, guys. Many thanks for your podcast, which I've just discovered. I'm looking forward to exploring the back catalogue. It's great to hear Australian voices doing such a podcast. One thing, though, it's a bit blokey. Ever thought of having some women on? Or some chicks. Yeah, right. We've had one. <laughs> we, we have. We, had, we did have the squeaky wheel on. Yes. And we interviewed Caitlin at one mm. stage. It's on the agenda, Ms McIntosh. Um, Here's the problem. Right at this moment, Scott's here because my internet connection keeps flicking on and off because of the wet weather and the phone box just getting flooded. So you have to be somebody who lives nearby. (laughs) (laughs) And we're really wanting people uh, needing more dissident voices, somebody to argue with as well. We don't need another person who's just going to agree with us all the time as well. So so is that a blokey so, thing too, that blokes are more inclined to dissent than um, no, no. our female friends? Um, uh, I'm just saying that the, the only people I know who'd be willing to come on are people who would agree with us and we need people who are going to disagree. And I actually thought I had lined up a guy who was going to disagree, but he decided not to come on. So now I'm back to square one. So, so there you go. If you look, if you're a female voice out there, and you'd like to talk to us on the podcast, make contact. Because yeah, we are a bit blokey. Mm. That's true. It is very true. Yeah. We are very blokey. Yeah. yeah. Um. Finally. Uh, I don't know if I've seen this one. Australia is a low-tax country? Probably not, because no, I only saw this one the last minute. Um, the Australian Institute did an open letter to the government saying, we're a low-tax country. Mm. Like, stop talking about cutting tax, mm. because we are a low-tax country. And what they did was they looked at all of the uh, taxes collected by governments compared to GDP and ranked Australia against other OECD countries. And lo and behold, um, just seven countries collect less tax per unit of GDP, and they would be Mexico, Chile, Ireland, Turkey, USA, Korea and Switzerland. So our ratio is 28.2% and the average is 344 and somewhere like Denmark is 459 So we are a low-tax country, and our tax-to-GDP ratio is lower now than during the Howard era. So we're just losing money out of the system. We're giving it away. Well... Aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, by not taking it in, we're giving it away, and it's big business. And, and well, here's the next article that I'll just quickly mention... Because um, I, I sent that off to right-wing Tony and he fired back with a, <laughs> a fair comment, 
describing to me how much tax he's paid in his lifetime. For most of his life, he's paid 50%. Like, he's paid a lot of tax, which is true. Which says he's a high-income earner. Exactly. And he's paid a lot of tax, and there's there's no way he should be paying more. No, I I honestly believe that you should cap taxation at 50%. I think it's wrong that you should have to work for more than half your time for the government. Yeah. You know, I do believe that wholeheartedly. Exactly the comment that some uh, certain person in my uh, wider family mm. loves to say, that he goes to work and he works until noon on Wednesday for the government. Right. There you go. So, um, so from an individual level, we're taking plenty, but it's the avoidance by the corporations, and we've talked about plenty of times where so many of them don't pay any tax at all, and I've got here a link to an article... Um, 90 billion is lost in resources tax. An Oxford University expert says Australia would be 90 billion better off if it adopted European style resource tax policies and argues that the Turnbull government has given up on collecting a meaningful amount of revenue from some of its most valuable resources. Absolutely. Um, so we've got the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies academic Juan Carlos Bouyer. B-O-U-E with a sort of accent above it. He warned that unless Australia radically overhauled its fiscal regime, it would have a second lowest share of government revenue from oil and gas in the world. Australia is on track to eclipse Qatar as the largest exporter of gas by 2020, but is expected to only earn $600 million in 2018. Oh, for God's sake. The same amount of revenue the government earns in beer tax. So that's $600 million. Meanwhile, Qatar earns $26.6 billion. We're just not it's getting... discrepancy, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. So Australia has an effective tax ratio of 21% on gas resources falling below the 35% or more taken by North Sea nations of Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway and Germany. Even if you took that 21% and ramped it up to 25%, we're still 10% below what you get charged in Norway, Denmark and Germany. I still think that we'd end up with a hell of a lot more money in government coffers. Of course we would. Of course we would. Like, I mean, they tried to do it. They tried, the miners. And Auntie Gina Reinhardt and all that. I know, yeah, yeah, and she got very upset. But, you know, it's about, be- it's about time the coalition grew up here and actually told her to go and get staffed. It's about time Labor grew up here as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Everybody should grow up here. Yeah. <laughs> Except the female voice that we need on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, uh, right wing Tony, you've paid your taxes on behalf of the people of Australia. I thank you for your service. No, no thank you, right wing Tony. I yeah. agree with you. You, yeah. you shouldn't ever be taxed any more than fifty percent yeah. because it's wrong that and you have to maybe, spend more than half your time. And maybe fifty percent is too high. Yeah, maybe. Yes, but at the same time, well, you know, I mean, you know, for personal income tax. Hmm. But at the same time, uh, what belongs to the nation, which is the resources under the ground, hmm. should. We should get, I mean, everybody should get a fair share of the wealth that comes from it. Absolutely, we should. And I, I, you know, I had a problem with the Gillard government at the time, but with reflection, I think they were right. Mm. I I did have a real problem with the tax package at the time, 
But looking back on it now and that sort of stuff, they were right to have it. There you go. Finally, um, who would be the best leader of the Liberal Party, excluding Malcolm Turnbull? If you asked a 1,000 Australians that question, who would be the next best pick, most popular pick? I'd say Julie Bishop. Mm. Yeah. Very good, Scott. Simon Birmingham is well, Simon Birmingham is impressive. In the, yeah, he's um, in the Senate, though, so he d- couldn't... Doesn't make the list. Well, he could, he could change to a lower house seat. Well, he'd have to win one first. Yeah. yeah. So they are, a central report asked 1,000 people that question, and 26% of them said Julie Bishop. 16% said Tony Abbott. And uh, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton got 5% each. Yeah. Um, See, that just, um, the numbers like that prove that Dutton isn't going to cut it. I, I seem to recall after the last election that you and I had a little wager of exactly. six pack. Yeah. If, if there was a change of government, a if change, a of, change leader, of leader before the next election. You went for ScoMo. I went for ScoMo, yeah. but yeah. I think now looking at those numbers, it wouldn't mm. be ScoMo. Mm. Yeah. You know, and you know, I don't think there's going to be a change of leadership before the next election. No, I don't think so either. Um, you know, Turnbull's probably going to lose, um, but the Liberal Party's going to cop it in the chin and that sort of stuff, and then they'll they'll probably select their leader of the opposition. They're probably already selecting their leader of the opposition now. Mm-hmm. Do you think Julie Bishop has a realistic chance? No, I don't think so. No, I think she has. Really? Yeah. Really? Mm. Yeah. Ooh, She's a survivor. She is, but she doesn't seem quite as assertive as a lot of the blokes in the in the gang there. She could be a compromise for people. Everybody hates each other, and then they go, oh, look, we could probably put up with her. The so peacemaker. I'd, I'd rather, you know, somebody like Dutton would say, well, I'd rather Julie Bishop than ScoMo. And ScoMo would say, well, I'd rather Julie Bishop than Dutton. So she could be a compromise candidate that way. But what about yeah. somebody else completely different? Yeah. Oh, potentially, potentially, but I, I don't think mm. she's going to be. I don't think she's going to be leader at ever at all. I, you know, I, I think that after the next election, on the assumption that Turnbull loses, which is looking mm. more and more likely, mm. I think that uh, you're probably going to have. I don't know. It, it could be any or one of them. It won't be Tony Abbott though. Mm. And so you've got someone from the hard right that could probably take the job. It could be. It could be Dutton, or it could be Skomer. Dutton is not really electable, though. No, I wouldn't have thought so. He's not warm and cuddly enough. No, he's not. He's not. But, you know, that's never stopped the Liberal Party before. They have, you know, they have put in people that are not warm and cuddly. You know, we had Tony Abbott, for God's sake, for two years or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean. He's, he, he doesn't appeal to a, a broad enough uh, spectrum of the people who would vote for the party, I don't think. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Mm. Julie Bishop. Look, she has her, her good qualities, I think. Yeah, now I was name, name one. Um, I was listening she dresses well. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast the other day that was actually looking at this, and they said that the reason why she's so popular is because she's from the foreign affairs portfolio, and they don't get... They don't have to put through the legislation and that sort of stuff. They don't have to get involved in the sausage-making down in the Senate. Yeah. They get to be the warm and cuddly yeah. foreign affair yeah. it's portfolio. An easy, it's, an it's, a, it's an easier gig. Mm. So you're, not, you're above the fray and that sort of stuff. 
but once you put her in the fray, I think that, you know, her... Before she had foreign affairs, she was doing something else. And I she, think she was, was treasury and she stuffed it badly. Yeah, yeah, you know, she stuffed that very badly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There we go. Mm-hmm. Well, gentlemen, unless there's other, any other pressing issues, I reckon we're going to call it... Um, call uh, Barbara Bush died today. Ah, right. Mm. There we go. So, yeah. Okay. A good egg. Thank you to Tony, who heard our call last week that we were getting some more audio equipment and just sent us a donation. Thanks, Tony, for that. Um, that's Thank not, you, Tony. It's not right wing Tony, it's a different Tony, but much appreciated. And, Tony um, Abbott. No, no, no not <laughs> him either. Tony. Yeah, not him either. So, uh, so anyway, it's been good. And, um, Scott, you've had more input because you're not so distant on the phone lines. Exactly, yeah, it is. It was good that it didn't drop out three or four times. So it was very good. Very good. It's more fun being able to see your face too. Exactly. As we talk. Yeah, Yeah. so Mm. there we go. All right, dear listener, hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week. Until then, bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye now. Now when I was a young man I carried me pack And I lived the free life on the rover From the Murray's Green Basin To the dusty outback Well, I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915 My country said, son it's time you stop rambling, there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun. And they marched me away to the war. And the band played waltzing Matilda. As the ship pulled away from the quay And amidst all the cheers The flag waving and tears We sailed off for Gallipoli And how well I remember That terrible day How our blood stained the sand and the water And of how in that hell that they called Suvla Bay We were butchered like lambs at the slaughter Johnny Turkey was white and he primed himself well He showered us with bliss and he rained us with shell And in five minutes flat he'd blown us all to hell Nearly blew us right back to Australia But the band played waltzing Matilda When we stopped to bury our slain We buried ours and the Turks buried theirs Then we started all over And those that were left, well, we tried to survive In that mad world of blood, death and fire 
And for ten weary weeks I kept myself alive Though around me the corpses piled higher Then a big turkey shell knocked me arse overhead And when I woke up in me hospital bed And saw what it had done Well I wished I was dead Never knew there was worse things than dying For I'll go no more waltzing Matilda All around the green bush far and free To hum tent and pegs A man needs both legs No more waltzing Matilda for me So they gathered the crippled the wounded the maimed and they shipped us back home to Australia The legless the armless the blind the insane those proud wounded heroes of Suvla And as our ship pulled into Circular Quay I looked at the place where me legs used to be And thank Christ there was nobody waiting for me To grieve, to mourn and to pity But the band played waltzing Matilda As they carried us down the gangway But nobody cheered They just stood and stared Then they turned all their faces away And so now, every April I sit on me porch And I watch the parade pass before me And I see my old comrades How proudly they march Reviving old dreams of past glories And the old men march slowly All bones stiff and sore They're tired old heroes From a forgotten war And the young people ask, what are they marching for? And I ask myself the same question. But the band plays waltzing Matilda. And the old men still answer the call. But as year follows year, More old men disappear Someday no one will march there at all Waltzing Matilda Waltzing Matilda Who'll come waltzing Matilda with me And their ghosts may be heard As they march by that billabong Who come waltzing Matilda 
with me. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.